Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our first reading this morning is from Amos 5, 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending, never-failing stream. This is Matthew 5, 25, 31 through 40. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd, shepherd, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name's Scott, and I am a friend of the Vine, um, and it's great to be here this morning. Uh, We're in a section... we're, we're going through some things, you're going through some things, and uh, this morning is about seeking social restoration and not just personal salvation. So who better than to talk about this than a professional painter who makes a living on Shopify? So great. Um, no, I'm an independent artist, which means most of the time I'm in, I'm being haunted by imagery and I'm just trying to release that haunting. Uh, but I, I, I'm an author and I'm a speaker and I travel around and yes, I'm friends with Mark and it's, uh, and this community and I've been here before and, it's, and, and I'm glad to be here. Um, so let's talk about this. So um, I actually finished a uh, Bono's latest, the book that came out called Surrender, because I'm a smarty pants. And uh, it's a big book. If you want to feel like you don't live an exceptional life, you should read it. But it's very interesting, and he's got a lot of good U2 stuff in it. Um, if you don't know who Bono is, he's the lead singer of one of the biggest bands in the world, uh, U2. Uh, he also did a lot, he's done a lot of advocacy work and campaigning, and um, for AIDS initiatives, money for uh, relief, debt relief, all this kind of stuff. He shares this interesting story, and I want to share it with you. So he, him and Bob Geldof, who's another uh, musician, were in Harry Belafonte's hotel room. All right, Harry Belafonte. I'm just assuming you know all these people. Okay, so Harry Belafonte. They're in their hotel room, and 
Harry Belafonte was a part of the civil rights movement. He marched, he was friends with Martin Luther King and marched with Martin Luther King. And so Bob and Bono are just like listening to Harry tell stories. And Harry tells this story um, where they, uh, at the time, John Kennedy elected uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy to be the district attorney. And they, no, not the district attorney, I'm sorry. Uh, Attorney General, thank you. Again, I make paintings. Uh, Attorney General. <laughs> and they are having, uh, uh, the leaders of the civil rights movement, they were having this gathering together and they're talking about this because they were like, we don't know if Bobby is a friend of ours. We don't think he's very strong. He's, uh, the Democratic Party is hesitant to align itself with the, the civil rights movement because they don't have a strong foothold in the South and it's all gonna be a thing. And so they're like, we don't know if this guy is uh, like a good ally, if he even will be an ally. And this meeting is going on and on and nobody's saying anything great about Bobby Kennedy. And, and Harry said he looked over at Martin and Martin was just like really frustrated. And eventually he just like slammed his hand on the table and, he, and he, this is what he said, he goes, Martin slams his hand on the table to snap everyone out of it. Does anyone here have anything positive to say about our new attorney general? No, Martin, that's what we're telling you, comes the reply. There's nothing good about this man. He's an Irish redneck and got no time for the black man's struggle. And then Dr. King and Harry had heard enough and adjourned the meeting saying, gentlemen, I'm releasing you into the world to find one positive thing to say about Bobby Kennedy because that one positive thing will be the door through which our movement will have to pass. And here's Bono saying, he's like, if I hadn't been sure what I'd come looking for at the feet of Harry Belafonte, suddenly it was clear. The search for common ground starts with a search for higher ground. Even with your opponents, especially with your opponents, a light bulb moment for me and a conviction that's informed my life as a campaigner ever since. The simple but profound idea that you don't have to agree on everything if one thing you do agree on is important enough. But hold on, school isn't out. Harry Belafonte hasn't finished his lesson. Years later, he continued, when Bobby Kennedy lay dying on that kitchen floor in a Los Angeles hotel, he'd become a civil rights hero, a leader, not a laggard in our movement, and I ask myself to this day, if we got him wrong in those early days, I'll never know, but I still grieve his loss. So did you find it, asked Bob, raising the question we were both thinking. When the meeting reconvened, did you find that one positive thing Dr. King was looking for? We did. Bobby was close to his bishop, who was in turn close to some of our clergy from the South, and we found that door to move through together. Uh, I want to talk, we're talking about like that, uh, in our faith practice, that salvation isn't just this personal thing, but it, 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 it's, it bleeds out into all kinds of aspects of society and stuff. And so um, I kind of want to like take this passage from Amos and uh, kind of do like a 40,000 foot view and then bring it down to like, because if, if there are any global leaders here, uh, please raise your hand. But I'm assuming some of us are just like, hey, I have a job and I have a family and I have the simple things I do. What does it mean for us to respond from this place? So let's look at the book of Amos. Um, and I'm actually friends with uh, some people call, who work at this place called The Bible Project. And they make these great videos explaining the Bible way better than I can. So let's listen to them explaining this book of Amos. Okay, so... Great summary. Thank you, Bible Project. Um, so this passage in Amos, uh, where we read the scripture, where there's this, like, I hate your festivals. Uh, the passage is saying, look, um, and here's what I want to focus on this line. It's like the, the, uh, Amos is doing this, these sermons, and he's like, um, 
There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor. You impose a tax gain on their grain. Therefore, you have built stone mansions. You will not live in them. You plant lush vineyards. Don't drink your wine. For I know your offenses, how great your sins. So uh, the prophet is saying what the sins are of this nation is how you're taking advantage of people, how you're uh, being undignified to the creation that God created, which is human dignity. And I, I think it would behoove us as a group to talk about sin for a little bit. I know that's everybody's favorite topic. You know, let's talk about sin, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Okay. Because I grew up in the church and uh, sin was presented to me as like a noun, like, or as an identifier, like you're a sin. That's a sin. This is a sin, right? And sin became very much this like thing that became an identity. Am I a sinner? You're a sinner, right? And, it, and actually, I don't think that that's, uh, it's not even me. That's not, that is part of it, but that's not really what that is. So let's just kind of walk through sin for a second. And I'm not a biblical scholar. I did go to Bible school, so that's why I'm up here. But look, sin breaks down uh, into two words. In the Hebrew, it's kata, and in Greek, it's hamartia. And it really just means to fail or miss the mark. And you probably know this. Um, and uh, it means to miss the mark. What's the goal? What's the goal? What's the goal that we're missing? Um, it, we can go to the first story in the scriptures. I wrote all this down, so I'm going to kind of read through it. Here we go. We can go to the first story in the scriptures where the creator makes human beings and makes them in its own image, bestowing divine dignity into creation. And so every human being is an image of God, a sacred being that represents the creator and worthy of respect. Sin is a failure of treating God and others with the respect that they deserve. And we see this played out in the scriptures. In fact, there are these laws that are given uh, to the people of Israel. Half are about failing at loving God. This is what it means to fail at loving God. And half are about failing at loving people, which is to say that loving God is deeply connected to loving people. And this is why in the Bible, to sin against people, to fail to love people is a sin against God. But most of the time in the Bible, people are unaware that they are even sinning. Like Pharaoh enslaves the Hebrews for national growth and security, which later on he discovers is an epic failure. And at one point, King Saul is hunting David down because he believes him to be a threat to the kingdom, only to repent later that he had it wrong and he had sinned. See, like sin is about more than just doing bad things. It's about how we easily deceive ourselves and create illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. The Bible writers are telling us that the ability for self-deception and therefore destruction to others runs real deep in us. <laughs> to be human is to encounter deep desires and self-serving urges that lead us to act on our own benefit at the expense of others. In the New Testament, Paul uses the word hamatia, and he's describing this power within us to make us do what we don't want to do. That often we have the inability to judge if what we are doing is a failure or success, a deep impulse that drives much of our behavior. And he goes so far as to say that we are slaves to sin to describe this powerful force in life. It's not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, you know, we know it to be true. And this is why the story of Jesus is such good news. It depicted, because Jesus is this creator becoming human and not failing at loving God, meaning he lived without sin. He, he didn't fail at loving God and he didn't fail at loving others. 
And, and the apostle Peter puts it this way. We, uh, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. Meaning like we're not forever condemned by our failure. We are given grace to try and try again. So if we bring this back to Amos, this isn't a story of like one bad landlord, you know? Like this isn't one bad landlord. This is like a whole system that's been created that's taking advantage of people. And like sin can be, a, a system can be a sin, a system that serves false idols. Like a system is just the word we use to describe policies and practices or a set of beliefs that has been established as normal and customary in a society through politics, social and economic structures. And in, the, in this time in Israel, it became normal for the rich and powerful to take advantage of those who were poor and powerless. And so the system that they created wasn't working for a lot of people. And it actually only worked if it was being, if it took away the dignity that God had given these people. And so the systems that don't serve the dignity of God and images of others, we can call those false idols. They're set up to serve like wealth and power and sex and war and privilege and dominance. And this also can happen in like the religions that we have, the, the religious systems. It can become, and this is where God, in the next slide, this is where the prophet says, um, I hate or despise your religious festivals, your assemblies, they're a stench to me. Because he's like, I, what I want is let justice roll down like a river. Like religion, their religion ended up becoming a sham. Because it said all of these things, we're going to sing these songs and stuff, and yet we're still harming human beings. And God's like, I, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of this. Religion become, can become a system. I know that um, maybe some of you, like, and, oh, and then you can go to the insane systems make people feel crazy. Uh, you know, my guess from what I know about this community is there are some of you who have actually been harmed by religious systems that you, uh, that you found yourself in the midst of church or institutional religion and then all of a sudden like something happened and then we like oh we got to keep this quiet and we're going to do this over here and then we're going to have to ask you to leave and where's those people why aren't they around anymore what happened right um i recently watched the documentary uh called the secrets of hillsong and it's fantastic uh <laughs> like if you don't know um hillsong I can't believe, is that not around anymore? I just, it's like, wow, okay. Hillsong was this great, uh, huge church movement that started out of Australia. And this, uh, this documentary is really about, like, how it came up and then what happened in New York City. So uh, Brian Houston is who started Hillsong. But um, he eventually found this young protege named Carl Lentz who went and started Hillsong New York City. And Carl Lentz, if you... If you um, if you don't know, great, because who cares? But Carl Lentz became this, like, celebrity pastor and all this stuff. And then it found out that he uh, was having multiple affairs, and it kind of all, like, diminished and stuff. This, inter this docuseries is uh, actually the first time where he gets interviewed. And it's fascinating, because it's full of tomfoolery and just it, everything that you imagine, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They all deserve what they got. But there was a moment in there where... He, he's like, this thing that we were doing got so big and it was moving so fast and there's thousands of people and it's, and he was like, and it was kind of just like on me. I mean, he created it to be on him, but it was on him and he found him, he knew that he wasn't healthy anymore. 
he knew that it was like too much for him. And he actually went to Brian Houston and he's like, hey, we're doing seven services a weekend. I don't think I can, I can't handle this anymore. I, I don't know, I, I don't feel well in this position. And Brian Houston's response to him was, when I was your age, I did 11 services a weekend. And Carl, he, in that moment, he was like, okay, I guess I got to try better, right? And it eventually led to self-destruction. Here's the thing, like, what happens, um, I'm trained as a spiritual director. Uh, spiritual directors are a function that walk alongside mostly um, people who become professional uh, religious people in some way, ministers, priests, things like that. Um, because here's the really difficult thing about being uh, a pastor, a priest, a minister, is that churches want, and uh, here's the problem, it, and it's mostly because of you, uh, okay? Uh, Maybe not this community, but a lot of people. Because churches want to hire a pastor to be the exact same person for the rest of their lives. They want them to be a certain way and be like, please say the same thing forever. Because, because why? Because to be a human being is filled with all kinds of... There's moments where you believe and there's moments you don't believe anything at all. There's moments you have faith and there's moments you have doubt. There's moments you feel like you understand and there's many days you're like, I don't even know what this is anymore. And that's what it feels like to be a human being. And we can often come to religious institutions or settings and stuff and be like, please hold the backpack of my fear and insecurity for me. And what's impossible for a pastor and minister is that they're not allowed to be a human being. They can't have moments of doubt. They can't have moments of disbelief. It's very difficult, like, because Mark can't come up here on a Sunday and be like, this week I didn't believe any of this stuff, you know? <laughs> and that's my sermon. Because, he, because there's mortgage, you know, there's like rent and there's salaries on the line, people's livelihoods. And so we can create this thing that then we just are whole, what are we doing? We're not being honest. We're not talking and giving dignity to what it's the difficulty and the complexity of being a human. We're trying, we've created a system to keep this thing going, even if it leaves a body of, like a trail of bodies, worn out and destructive, uh, like things that happen to people. And we can create something different. It's just like, I, I, this happened to me. I worked at a, um, I worked at a, this kind of like mega church in Houston, Texas uh, for a few years. And, I, you, know, it's, the, you know, the thing about life is like it never, it, things are never like, it was all good or it was all bad. Um, I was hired by this church to uh, be their artist in residence, which means I got, I had had this dream for a long time of like, what would an artist look like if they worked for a church? What would it be like to be embedded in a community and develop spiritual formation through creative practices? And, and uh, the pastor of this church gave me this opportunity, and I wouldn't be who I am today because of that. I learned so much. I was given just like, just do whatever you want. Like, I, I remember when he offered me the job, I was like, yeah, but what do, you, like, what do you want me to do? And he's like, I don't know, just listen to the Holy Spirit and do whatever it tells you, which is a great response. Um, but uh, it was great. But we had like five services a Sunday, and I thought I needed to keep up with that. 
And I did for years making paintings. I, I, for a while, I was like a live painter versus a dead painter. I made, look, I grew up Lutheran. I like didn't do anything charismatic, but the Holy Spirit was like, here's images. I want you to make it during services. So I would. And I didn't dance. I didn't flip it over. And it turned out to be Jimi Hendrix. It was just like, I just, it was very boring. I would just like stand there and make a painting and be like, this is what I heard. Okay, sit down. That's it. And it was great and magical, and it probably won't ever happen again, but it was a season of my life. And, uh, but I, I had a moment, it was like two weeks after Easter, I remember sitting, we had this one long table, and we would all work around it, and I just remember sitting, working on my laptop. What did churches do before laptops? I don't know, because now it's just all on laptops, we should ask. I was working, and then I heard this like inaudible sound of like breaking glass happen, and just everything in me just like fell apart. And I just began crying at the table. And my coworker, Paul, was like, hey man, are you okay? And I was like, I'm really tired and I don't know if I can do this anymore. <laughs> and I went to the pastor, I went over to his house and I was like, hey, I'm not good. I, I'm falling apart. And we were about to transition into a new building and all this stuff was happening. And his response to me, and I don't, look, I don't hold this against him because there was a lot going on. But it, his response was like, hey, man, you just need to get some, like, better rhythms in your life. <laughs> Which was true, but not when you're falling apart. When you're falling apart, you're like, you need a timeout. You need to go to therapy. <laughs> you need some care. Not just like, hey, go on a run and take more naps. You know, like, that wasn't, I was far beyond that. Because the system we had created was, we got to keep this thing going. We got to do all these services. We got to do all this thing. And I saw that it just left a trail of bodies, burnt out people. Because, like, like, I mean, I guess that what, I guess my question to us here, because I'm in the same conversation. I'm a part of a small community up in Portland, Oregon. And I have mixed feelings about it. Like, I kind of hate like half the service and I think the other half is like the most amazing thing ever. And I had this, and I've, I've had this, I had a time where I just didn't know if I wanted to do this anymore, but I had this, I just remember sitting in June during one of the services and I was like, all right, I give up. I just, I don't know how to hold these two things together, but I think what's happening here is really important and I want to be a part of that. Like, what is this? I think what we're doing here, the kingdom of God is not some mystical veil that you're like, whoa, we're in the kingdom now. The kingdom of God is going, I'm going to choose to believe that you and you and you have a God-given dignity. And communally, we can, we're going to come together and we're going to honor that dignity. And we're going to see what the spirit wants to do with us corporately. And we're going to, people are going to come in who've been undignified and we're going to give them that dignity. And then people, and then we're going to go, and then what are your needs? You said this this morning. You're like, what are your needs? What do you need help with? Because it breaks, like Jesus, I don't think this is in order, but can you go to the passage where Jesus says uh, the least of these? Because Jesus, in his, in his speaking, he's like, you know what the kingdom looks like? It's going to be this moment where it comes together and and Jesus is going to be like, you're in the kingdom because you fed me when I was hungry. You gave me water when I was thirsty. These are very practical things. You visited me when I was in the hospital. You invited me in when I was a stranger. And they're like, when did you see that? And he's like, when you did it to people, 
you were doing it to me. This whole thing is about how are we going to treat one another. And so this gathering, this morning, and this community is about learning to practice that. To because there is another kingdom that says, no, people are for our own gain. We want to use it, others to get our riches and our sex and our dominance and our wars and all of that stuff. And this is a rebellion to say, no, that is an evil kingdom. This is God's kingdom. This is what God wants. And so we're here to practice that. But people are complicated. <laughs> and... Uh, Sometimes people are really hard to love. Have you been on the internet lately? Oh, it's not fun. Uh, <laughs> have you been stuck in traffic? It's not fun. So w why I bring up sin is like we constantly, we know we have this thing in us that wants to belittle, objectify, and take away the thing that uh, the image of God in people. So the, if you're a global leader, if you're a world leader, um, hey, make better policies, okay? That's the, that's the sermon for you. Make better policies that care for people. But if you're like me and you're like, I have an internet job or I just have a simple family, I don't know if I'm affecting global dynamics and economics, what are our simple practices maybe that help us kind of keep the, that help us find a foot of compassion? How do we find common ground with the people around us? Because people are going to disappoint. They're going to frustrate us. We're going to find ourselves frustrated. We're going to want to take advantage of people at times. It happens. It happens. And we can confess and try again, and repent, and just be like, I, I need help. Um, and so and I'm curious, and uh, in my community, we usually break up and we talk to each other. But, like, I guess my question to you is, what ways are you practicing to find common ground? Because it's really going to be unique to each one of us. There's no, like, set thing, like, just look at people and imagine they're glowing with God's glory. I don't know. Whatever you need to do. But, like, what ways do you find common ground with people? When you meet difficult people, when you deal with difficult family members, when you're, when you're angry about the, the line you're stuck in or whatever, like, how do you, what happens to you? How do you find a place of common ground? Because this is how that kingdom is going to start working through. It's going to find that place. I have a couple practices that I would like to leave you with, um, but really this is the question for you for the rest of the day or to discuss with your community that you came with, people you were with. It's like, how do we practice finding that? There's a couple things that I do, um, and uh, one is this uh, practice of interbeing. So uh, this is given, this is, I learned this from a, a a, a Buddhist activist named Thich Nhat Hanh. He's passed now, but he has some great books. Um, but one of the things is he would have this thing. He would be like, um, look at this piece of paper. He's like, can you see the sun in this paper? Because it, the sun shines on the earth, which grows trees, which, you know, we turn into paper. So can you see the sun in this paper? He's like, can you see, um, can you see the water, the rain in this paper? Because the rain comes and it helps grow the plants. Can you see the rain in this paper? He's like, can you see the, the lumberjack in this paper? Because it takes somebody to cut down the trees and to mill it and to turn it. He's like, can you see the, the, the parents of the lumberjack, the grandparents? And he's like, when you begin to see the interconnectedness of everything, you realize you're a part of something much, much bigger. It's not just you on your own. You're actually... There is an interbeing in all things. And you can, as Mary Oliver said, you're invited into the family of things. So I try at times when I'm frustrated to go, we are connected in so many ways, and I'm losing that vision right now. 
And then another thing that I do, and I can leave you with this, and this is a great, if we do this together, I want you to find your heartbeat. Um, you can put your hand on your chest, you know, in your neck, on your wrist. And if you don't have a heartbeat, maybe you're a zombie. Okay, so um, <laughs> if you can find your heartbeat in there. You, you have this heart that's beating, and you're not in control of it. Your heart beats without you having to do anything. Um, we could ask ourselves a question, where did, you, where did you get that heart? Did you have to go to a store or a sanctuary or a shrine to get it? No, it's just always been there. It was given to you. We could call it a, a, a place of grace, right? Give, receiving something that you never asked for. Um, something that keeps you alive. You're, you're only alive because of something you didn't ask for, and that's something that happens without you being in control of it. You're here, like all of us are here, because of, of grace, really. And we could take that to um, our breathing. Um, you know, we can control our breathing a bit, but it, it happens also involuntary, like... And... Uh, You know, the air fills our lungs and it keeps us alive. There's something that happens that we're not in charge of that's a, that is a, a, another touch point of grace. We could even take it to a bigger thing like uh, the planet we live on keeps us alive because of how the distance of the sun is to the planet and it prevents, it creates life and we're here and we're sustained. There's all of these kind of, if you look, there's all these places of grace. We're all here because of things that we're not in charge of. Whenever I get frustrated with people and frustrated with myself, I usually just kind of try to find my heartbeat and go, there's so many things you're being given right now, and you can give that to others. That The person's going through the same thing too, and they have a place of grace. There's a touch point of grace. And we can find, I find in my heartbeat, a place of common ground with others. But really the invitation to you is, is to go, how are you going to practice this? Because this whole thing is, is about... Uh, is about love, is about taking care of one another, and that's what we're doing together. Um, and that will slowly, that slowly seeps into society and how we deal with food distribution, how we deal with politics, how we deal with schools, education, how we're gonna take care of our sick, all of that. And if we lose the sight of God-given dignity in each other, it will become destructive and sinful systems that take care, that take advantage of others. There you go. That's my artist's take on it all. So uh, let me just pray for us. Let's say a prayer. Um, giver of our lives, um, the creator who loves us, the maker who knows us, the, the, the giver of all that we have. We, uh, we're here because we have a desire to know you. And your scriptures let us know that we're going to discover you in the midst of each other, in the midst of how we take care of one another, how we, how we see needs and, we, and we're responding to one another. Um, it's not an individual thing. Like we, you have invited us to discover you in the lives of the people around us. So would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us hearts that are open? Would you help us? Would you, would you, we, we understand that we have times where we're cranky or we don't want to deal with people. We don't even like people at times. Like I, I, I can confess that. But I, um, my heart that's drawn to you knows that you keep inviting me into the life of others. 
And so may I, may I lay down my need to control everything? May I lay down my need to like have people be the thing for me? And may I see them for who they are, how you see them? I, I, I really want that. I, and, I, and, I, and I offer that as my worship to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for uh, giving us dignity. And may we not uh, trample on that dignity. If, I, if I'm honest, like when I think about how sin was used and you're a sinner and stuff, it's, maybe that is true because maybe there are things that I do that are destructive to myself. And I, and I need to confess that I, at times, am destructive to myself. And that probably bleeds out into how I treat other people. So thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for a love that we can't be separated from. May it permeate our lives and how we treat one another, how we treat ourselves. And thank you for creating a community where we can practice that together. Thank you for your grace. Amen. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.